When little girls' lives are cut short, their lifeless bodies found in or around their homes, it sends a community into a state of panic and shock. It rattles everyone right to the core. The fact the underbelly of life can rise up and snatch an innocent youth, take them away from us forever, is simply unfathomable. But, unfortunately, we live in a world where the unfathomable happens. I know because it happened in my hometown, Baytown, Texas, in 1985. We had two separate incidents where a young girl's life was snatched up and taken away from this world forever. And I'm here to tell you about them. Hi, welcome to Crude Axe Murdered in Oil Town. I'm your host, Jen Schaefer. Crude Axe is a true crime podcast that discusses murders that happen in and around oil towns in America. On this podcast, many of the murders we will discuss were my father's cases. He was a homicide detective in the 1980s and 90s in Baytown, Texas, and in Chambers County. His name is Paul Schaefer. I didn't know it at the time, but 1985, I now dub the year without a conscience, was a tough year for my dad. That specific year, he solved a murder of a man who was discovered in his car with a gunshot to the head, the murder of a little girl on Halloween night. She was killed by someone no one would have ever expected, the murder of a woman whose new body was found dumped in the bay, and the mysterious disappearance of two local women. That case would go unsolved for over three decades. In fall 1985, I was a fourth grader at Lamar Elementary School in Baytown, Texas. I played soccer for the Baytown Saints Soccer Club, and I was a Girl Scout. I attended Trinity Episcopal Church every Sunday, and my Sunday school teachers were Bob and Audrey Mazur, who was none other than Ellen DeGeneres' aunt. Yes, the Ellen. My friends at the time were all the Jennifers. There were five of us. And then there was Jamie, Laura, Sandra, Shireen, Cassie, and Angela, Lynette, Amy, and Esther. We were all in the same class together all throughout elementary school. We experienced major events together, like when baby Jessica fell down the well, and when the little girl from the Soviet Union visited and toured the U.S. during the Cold War. And we would later experience the Challenger explosion together. We parted ways when junior high began. My family ended up moving to another neighborhood across town, and it sent me to Gentry Junior High, while all my friends that I had for years went off to another school, um, Horseman Junior High. I admit it was a tough transition to make. It's kind of tough at that age for everybody, right? But I learned that the same thing happened to our first victim, young Carolyn Hahn. She moved with her family the summer after her fifth grade year, and she went not just to another school district, but to a whole other town. They moved from Laporte, Texas, to Mont Bellevue. She was to attend Barbers Hill Junior High that fall, but sadly, she didn't get the chance to make those new friends and forge those new relationships and have those new experiences. 
because her life instead was cut short by a monster disguised as a man. This is the story about what happened to her. And for those of you who are sensitive listeners, please regard that. This is a disclaimer that what happened to her was very disturbing. And so here, I'm going to go ahead and tell it. And I call this a murder in three acts. Act one. Carolyn Hahn loved to swim, lived for it. On any given warm Texas day, and we get a lot of them here, you could find her at the pool, splashing around, making waves. Water fueled her soul. And that day, September 10th, 1985, was no different. When her parents Fred and Linda planned on heading out to Highlands for an archery outing with their nine-year-old son Scott, 11-year-old Carolyn asked if she could stay behind to swim in the complex pool with the new friends she had made that day. They reluctantly allowed it, only with the promise she'd go straight home right after swimming and follow all the necessary safety precautions. Carolyn agreed and in turn got to spend the rest of the day with her friends at the pool she so dearly loved. She swam until her heart's content and popped home around 6.45 to go grab a bite and watch her favorite TV show, Who's the Boss? Before sitting down to watch her show, she made herself something to eat, a couple of fried eggs and some toast. She used a three-inch serrated steak knife to butter her toast and left it sitting on the counter. She cracked open a cold can of Coca-Cola Classic, slurped it, and ate her snack while sitting back and watching the Bowers and the Maselli's and their brand new life around the bend. At around 7.20 p.m., a friend of Carolyn's came by the apartment and pleaded that she come back out to swim some more. So, when the show ended, Carolyn obliged. I mean, Three's a Crowd, a spinoff of Three's Company, was on next, so I don't blame her. The kids stayed out at the pool for about an hour longer until the sun finally began to sink into the earth and the moon began to finally rise. At around 8.15 p.m., when the streetlights began popping on, signaling that it's time to go home and stay home, the kids embarked to their respective residences. Carolyn entered her place only 40 or so yards from the pool. She locked the gate behind her and locked all the doors just as she was instructed. Inside, the little girl removed her swimsuit, dried off, and put on some night clothes and sat back down on the sofa in front of the television. She pulled out her school workbooks and started to work on her homework for the night while the TV hummed in the background. The subject was math. She solved problem number seven and was moving on to problem eight when something interrupted her. An intruder abruptly entered the residence using a screwdriver to jimmy open the door. It startled her and she rushed to the phone to call for help. The intruder then snatched the phone from her small hand, yanking it so hard the cord snapped free from the base. He violently struck her across the face with it and then jammed the screwdriver he had in his hand into her neck. Despite the wounds, she continued to try to fight him off and finally she got free. She bolted into the kitchen where she spotted the steak knife she had used earlier and she quickly snatched it to arm herself. He followed her. There was a standoff, but the intruder, who was much bigger than the sixth grader, grabbed her arm and twisted it. The knife fell out of her hand and onto the floor. He then used all his might to slam her head and body into the adjacent wall 
He picked up that knife and then used it to lacerate the left side of her throat, causing the wound that would end up killing her. After the altercation, he left her there, in a top and no bottoms. And while young Carolyn was bleeding to death on the floor, he used a towel to wipe the knife as clean as possible, and he put it back into a random drawer. He took the phone handpiece and the screwdriver he brought with him and exited out the back. At around 9.20, Carolyn Hahn's parents and brother finally returned home from their outing. As they pulled into their parking spot, the lights from their pickup shone on and likewise startled a man in his early 20s wearing blue jeans and tennis shoes and no shirt who was walking around the corner of the apartment. He froze for a second, locked eyes with Mrs. Hahn, but when someone called his name in the distance, he quickly darted off into the dark shadows of the complex. At the time, the family didn't think much of it. They approached the apartment and unlocked the kitchen door. The apartment was still, but also disheveled. Sounds coming from the TV filled the air. They proceeded to walk inside, cautiously, and upon entering further, they were immediately stopped in their tracks. There in the hallway, between the living room and the kitchen, they found their little Carolyn face down in a pool of her own blood. She was dead. Act Two. Mont Bellevue, Texas is a small town that butts up against the northeast side of Baytown. From my parents' neighborhood in Baytown, it's a short one-minute drive down Highway 146 right past I-10. Its original economic base, like most Texas towns, started off as farming and ranching, but soon enough, especially near the Gulf, it became a hot spot for oil and drilling and the money and jobs soon followed. Families began to migrate there and the Hahn family was one of them. They recently moved to Mont Bellevue from LaPorte, Texas. It wasn't necessarily a far move, geographically speaking, but for kids, a move like that may as well have been to another country. But the Hans were in search of a better life for themselves and their children, somewhere safe, and LaPorte indeed had its fair share of problems. In 1985, there was a massive oil glut that caused unemployment and crime to spike. Neighboring towns were also becoming more dangerous, like my hometown, Baytown. The Hans were led to believe going east was a good move and that Mont Bellevue was far safer than Laporte, Texas. So that's where they went. And honestly, they weren't entirely wrong. Crime has never been particularly high in Mont Bellevue, and socioeconomically speaking, things have always been a little better off there. What they didn't know is Mont Bellevue still has its own certain bite to it, an underground industry, so to speak. The Gulf Coast is home to over 500 salt domes, and these, quote, oddities of nature are what tends to do both favors for them, but also doom them. The oil industry uses these salt caverns beneath the domes as storage for petrochemical products. And Mont Bellevue stores more volatile carbons in those domes than anywhere else in the world. In the 1970s, they expanded their storage, and soon the heart of the town and perhaps a third of its 1,700 residents were sitting up on up to 100 million barrels of petrochemical products. Where is Erin Brockovich when you need her? Explosions followed, as well as dangerous leaks 
In the 1980s, thousands of barrels of hydrocarbons began oozing up towards the town after a pipeline rupture. A 1985 explosion forced nine petrochemical groups to end up buying some of the folks out of their homes. And to this day, those families live in newer subdivisions. But the buyout in some ways has made Mont Bellevue an even grimmer place. Now the town is divided between those who took the buyout money and others who either refused to sell or were outside the buyout line. What's left is plenty of bitterness and conflict. And if you want to read more about that, you can go to a New York Times article called Chemicals in Salt Cavern. I'm sometimes led to believe that conflict itself leaves behind an indestructible crude energy that lingers and waits to be manifested. It comes into existence, is resuscitated and recreated by the wicked deeds that we humans do, and evil comes from that lingering energy. It reaches up and out from its putrid, hateful deaths and creates monsters, real-life monsters. And it was a monster that indeed killed Carolyn Hahn, no doubt about it. Her family had a hard time coping with her death. The image of her murdered body was burned into the brain of her mother. She'd have nightmares about it. Their nine-year-old son, Scott, was traumatized and refused to go into their new apartment unless every room and nook and cranny were looked into first. Sometimes he'd even refuse to leave the locked car to go inside. Law enforcement knew they had to find this killer and find him fast before any other carnage could ensue. Right away... Finding this monster became an obsession for Mont Bellevue Police Chief Fred Dodd. He was obsessed with this case, known to work 36 hours straight at times and wouldn't, or more so couldn't, let it go. This is an obsession I am only barely beginning to understand, that police obsession. Just reading about the things that happened to this little girl is enough to stain the mind. I imagine the visual of this scene is enough to slice the mind right open so the pain of it can crawl inside and make a home into a horror house. As autopsy? Autopsy showed Carolyn Hahn died from bleeding out from a stab wound to her carotid artery. She suffered other stab wounds to her neck and body and blunt force trauma to the face and head. She had defensive wounds on her fingers and hands. Though she was found with her clothing removed below the waist, there was no semen found on her or in her body. Upon examination of the crime scene, they discovered foreign fingerprints that didn't match any in their database and didn't match any of the family members. Investigators had the possible murder weapon, fingerprints, and a composite sketch of the suspect. The description was that of a young white man with brown hair between the ages of 17 to 22, weighing about 150 pounds and 5'8 in height. What police also had was a psychological profile of the killer put together by the FBI, and they determined that the killer lived in the apartment complex. He was possibly a high school dropout, and he came from a middle-income family with a domineering female figure. And, creepy alert, more than likely, the killer attended Carolyn Hahn's funeral. When another little girl, Mary Stiles, was murdered, police thought there may have been a connection. The two homicides were eerily similar. Both girls were stabbed and strangled and beaten, and their killer profiles were similar. And catch this, their fathers both worked at the same plant. 
But after further investigation, they discovered they weren't. And we're going to go over Mary Stiles' case after this one, and you'll see that they were right in that assumption. All Chief Dodd had was a hunch, really. A high-consuming hunch that snatched a hold of his snaps and held on tight, like a rider to a raging bull. Living in an apartment complex is like living in a beehive. In the hive, the bees begin to whisper with information, and with enough time, those whispers begin to create a buzz. This particular buzz offered up a few names for law enforcement to look into. And those names were Dale Dollar, Sam Pettigrew, and Randy Platson. The night of Carolyn's murder, the three men were drinking beers and sitting on an apartment balcony that overlooked the pool. They were watching, more like gawking, at the young girls and were overheard by neighbors making lewd remarks about the girls, especially Han. What they said was crass enough to leave a bad impression and arouse suspicion from their neighbor. This information sunk its teeth into Dodd. He went after them straight away and focused the entire investigation on them. He knew it had to be them. He barreled ahead and looked to indict them almost instantly, especially 21-year-old machinist Platson, who fit the description. Though some of his colleagues were convinced that his obsession was possibly giving him a certain amount of tunnel vision. It was around this time Paul Schaefer was added to the case. As a courtesy to Mont Bellevue, Baytown PD loaned him out as an extra set of ears and eyes. He instantly followed up with other leads, other than the three suspects that Dodd wanted to go after. And that's when he was contacted by Baytown PD Byron Jones. He asked him if he could meet with him and a Baytown PD chaplain at the station. When he did, the chaplain proclaimed Platson was a member of his church and he was depressed and suicidal, that he'd been singled out as a murderer, but he vehemently stated he didn't do it. He was so adamant about it that Schaefer asked, okay, would you be willing to take a polygraph? And they all three did, Dollar, Pettigrew, and especially Platson. They all three obliged. When they finally administered the polygraph test to the three men, all three men passed. Detective Paul Schaefer was allowed to continue conducting his own investigation. Months earlier, a friend and colleague of his named Jamie Glenn directed him to talk to a man named Wayne Klepper, who was a polygraph administrator who tested people early on in the investigation. When he met with him, he discovered something interesting. That Klepper told Detective Fred Dodd he knew who did it without a doubt, except Dodd, in the midst of his tunnel vision, wouldn't listen. This person, he said, was highly deceptive on the polygraph test he had given him, and he stormed out when he questioned him further and when questions got tougher. Klepper thought, you know what, this is the guy. This person was a man by the name of Dwayne Edward Heiser. Act 3. Not much was known about Dwayne Heiser, except he lived in the same apartment complex as the Hahn family. He was a laborer by trade, and he was a seventh grade dropout. He was known as a loner and kept mostly to himself. 
He didn't have many friends, but was married and had two small children. When they initially interviewed Heiser, he didn't give them the vibe he was a killer. He was soft-spoken and seemingly a little shy and mild-mannered. He didn't pique their interest despite the fact that the day of Carolyn Hahn's murder, he was hanging out by the pool, watching the kids. They let him go and focused all their efforts in trying to bring down the other three men that they were for sure did this to Carolyn. So during that time, while they were focused on these three guys, Dwayne Heiser and his family moved to Livingston, Texas. And while police were distracted with other leads and other suspects, Dwayne hid out, keeping a low profile. It's safe to say he probably thought he got away with it. But little did he know that police were on the hunt for him. When Schaefer brought the new information to Chambers County Sheriff Chuck Morris, he was given the green light to actively pursue Dwayne as a suspect. And then they found him a little less than two years after the murder. When they found him, they brought him in for questioning. And after an hour of intense interrogation, he asked for counsel and was released. Less than a month later, on April 14, 1988, Heiser was arrested in Polk County for outstanding traffic warrants. While he was in custody, police again had the opportunity to question him about Carolyn Hahn's murder. He asked for a lawyer, again, and if he could have the chance to go home and talk to his wife. Police allowed it under surveillance. Evil acts, even done by evil people, have a tendency to smother one's conscience. It hardens on the outside, and what's left on the inside, the soft, sticky guilt of it, begins to swell and swell until the pressure becomes far too much to handle, and it finally bursts open. The next day, police officers escorted Heiser and his wife to the Chambers County DA's office because he was ready to spill it. Dwayne Edward Heiser couldn't take the pressure anymore, and he finally confessed to the brutal murder of Carolyn Hahn. His wife, newly hearing about the horrific crime he committed, was absolutely devastated. His confession stated that he entered the apartment with every intention to sexually molest young Carolyn, and he followed her, barged his way in, attempted to molest her, and struck her in the head when she fought him and stabbed her with a knife. He provided his confession in written and typed form in an audio recording at the site of the crime. It was even his idea to show the scene of the crime to officers. After the recording, he also gave a recorded interview to police at the station, providing them in total with three different confessions, all with Miranda rights given, all by the book. After only three hours of testimony, Judge Carol Wilburn of the 344th District Court found Dwayne Edward Heiser guilty of the murder of Carolyn Hahn and sentenced him to 99 years in prison. His lawyer tried his best with the case and had him enter a plea of not guilty so they'd have a chance at an appeal. He claimed in the appeal that the case rested solely on the confession and there was no other evidence that tied Heiser to the case. More importantly, that due process had not been served. But in a decision on May 6, 1992, Texas Court of Appeals declared no abuse of discretion has been shown and there is no reversible error. And he's been locked up ever since.
Dwayne Heiser, now 61 years old, is serving time at the Estelle Prison in a state-administered correctional authority in Huntsville, Texas. He has a projected release date of 11-6-2023. Friends of Carolyn Hahn have a petition up, and it's up on our website at www.crudax.com in our blog section about Carolyn. They have a petition up there to keep him in there for good. So please feel free to sign and share. Again, you can find that on our website. Because listen to this. On June 11th, 2022, Carolyn Hahn would turn 48 years old. What we regret most for these kids who were plucked from this world without the opportunity to grow old is what greater good for all of us they were denied of achieving. What future love they were denied and missed out on and what grand experiences they missed out on doing, climbing the heights of mountains, diving in the depths of seas. I think of the life Carolyn Hahn could have led, and I bet it would have been an amazing one with lots of love, laughter, and friendship, and mostly lots of warm, inviting water to swim in. I bet in heaven that's just what she's doing now. In our next episode, episode two, I'll talk about the other little girl whose life was also cut short in 1985, a year without a conscience. So stay tuned for that. And thank you so much, y'all, for listening to Crude Acts. This is our first podcast, and I'm really excited about this thing, and I'm really excited to share with you more of the things that I've learned. I'm your host, Jen Schaefer. I'm also writer and producer of this show, Russell Dunlap and Amy Dunlap are executive producers, and music is by Two Star Symphony, and you can check them out. They're on Spotify and iTunes, and uh, you can check them out on the web. Again, that's Two Star Symphony. They're amazing. And that's going to be it for today, folks. We'll see you next time.